Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the South Asia Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nupur. Today, we're speaking to Professor Sweta Balakrishnan, an assistant professor of law with courtesy appointments in sociology, Asian American studies, and criminology, law, and society at the University of California, Irvine. Sweta is a sociolegal scholar whose research examines the intersection between law, globalization, and stratification from a critical feminist perspective. Their first book, titled Accidental Feminism, was published earlier this year by Princeton University Press. That is the book we're discussing today, but they also have a second book titled Invisible Institutions, published by Hart Publishing with Sarah Desolet that brings together cross-subjective perspectives on legal globalization, and a third forthcoming book, Gender Regimes and the Politics of Privacy, published by Zuban Books with Kalpana Kannabiran, that investigates the gendered legacies of India's privacy jurisprudence. Welcome, Sweta. So good to have you here. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Likewise. So just to start us off, can you please tell us a bit about yourself, your academic journey, and your primary research areas of interest? Sure. I don't know how far back you want me to go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's like one of those long CVs. You don't know where to Hmm. cut it off. No, wherever you want to start. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I I mean, I guess I'm now an assistant professor. I'm in a law school, but I don't think that's how the journey needed to have started or ended. I'm a sociolegal scholar, as you said. I um, did my undergraduate education in India. I went to Nalsar, the National Academy of uh, Legal Studies and Research in Hyderabad. I was their first, um, like, sort of full-year batch. They had a batch before us, but I was, like, the first first sort of big batch that they graduated. And um, I graduated in 2004. I worked as a corporate lawyer for a couple of years. I um, spent some time um, teaching in India to figure out if, like, I wanted to be an academic and figured that that was sort of definitely the kind of professional path I wanted to be on, but I wasn't quite sure how to do it. And um, I came, I mean, I applied to um, programs in the U.S. for an LLM, um, and I got in to a bunch of places. Thankfully, I got a scholarship to go. I couldn't have gone otherwise. I um, I went to Harvard for an LLM in um, 2007, stayed back there for a couple of years on a fellowship mm-hmm. um, with the center on the, um, it was a, it was then called the program on the legal profession. It's since changed its name to the center on the legal profession. Um, and yeah, that was the first start. Like that was the first academic start and it was like a pre-doc. I mean, I guess now you'd call it a pre-doc. Mm-hmm. Then it was just, you know, a professor that thought I was doing work that needed a little bit more time for it to become mm-hmm. work. And I was very grateful. I stayed back and I, um, knew that I wanted to apply for a PhD. I went to, I applied for a PhD in sociology, was again lucky, got the money to be able to go and went to Stanford in 2009, finished in 2015. Um, And my time at Stanford was sort of really important in terms of like the methodological interventions that I had. I think I was interested in sociolegal stuff, but the training and the axes as a sociologist definitely came with my time at Stanford. and then I spent some time in NYU Abu Dhabi, um, which I think really set the theoretical core and the and the sort of valence that the book has for thinking about Souths differently, for thinking about extensions differently. And um, yeah, that was my postdoc. And then I came to Irvine in 2000, 
God, 2018, 19, hmm. 18. <laughs> I, I can't even remember. I feel, like, I feel like COVID has done such a number on time yeah. that it's easy to think of it linearly, but it's so hard to keep it track is. of it. So yeah, been moving around a bunch of different schools, a bunch of different programs, but it's really nice to um, be in a law school, but also play across a bunch of different departments and think with colleagues across different departments. So it's really great to be here. Right. So in fact, that's my second question, which is that you sort of initially trained as a lawyer and then I guess, you know, by like your PhD training, you're a sociologist. So at what point in this journey did you actually start studying the legal profession and or, or what got you interested in actually like just looking inward? In, into your own community, I guess. So funny. I don't think of it as my own community. <laughs> <in a sense. laughs> I, just, I mean, maybe I do. Maybe I mean, I think all all sort of research at some level is rooted in biography. It's all a bit narcissistic. Um, sort of you study what you are interested yeah. in, what you sort of find gaps in, what, you're, what you think you know, but also don't fully know and you're trying to unpack for yourself. Mm. Um, I think I knew I wanted to study the legal profession because it's sort of the inequities in it. It just seemed like a really cool site to think about inequity. And it's sort of how I went to grad school. So I came for a, um, I came to the U.S. for an LLM because, um, uh, as it happened, David Wilkins is a professor at Harvard Law School, um, sort of had, he'd read something that I was working on just on the side, wasn't really thinking about applying to grad yeah. school, but he'd, um, he he decided that you know this would be a really good thing to spend time on because he was just thinking about global extensions for his center that he was just starting up you know it was very early days it was well well before it is what it is um and so we we sort of just you know he wrote to me and said you know it would be really cool if you came and did this and you could work with me and be in my RA like mm. would you consider it and you know when you're when you're sitting in india and like sort of thinking through all of the different ways in which this option can matter someone taking an interest in a thing that you sort of are thinking is cool but don't fully yeah. know the language or the nuance for um really offered a chance to um i don't know it, it offered a new way to think about the stuff that i was already sort of primed mm. to be interested in um and then and then the and, and then when i got here sort of my big you know you get to do a you can you can choose to make your LLM sort of academics you can do a mm -hmm. long paper in some of these programs so I did a long paper on um, all of the South Asians that came to Harvard Law School and sort of it was a, it, that was my that was the paper that I used to actually um, apply for sociology programs and I hate looking <laughs> at that paper now because it's a reminder of like where this started and like the rudimentary graphs in it and and sort of the hand counting I did in the archives it was just really it was interesting that I thought that was capable of of, uh, of significance. And in some ways it was, because I think all questions matter and where you start matters. But um, it really was just the, it was a, in some sense an accidental mm. opportunity that then coalesced into a lot of intentional choices over time. And I'm not trying to meta frame the book. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, I think there's some form mm. of that. We, we'll get to the agony of accidental in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but let's get to the book and what's the origin story of the book? Um, how was it conceived? And yeah, what's really the story of this book? So yeah, so when I was a when I was a pre-doc, as I said, I was interested in the legal profession, mostly because everybody I was talking to at that time, mm -hmm. right? Like my colleagues who are interlocutors in my intellectual exchanges were all um were people who were studying the legal profession at different angles. I was sort of interested in the globalization of the profession because that was the world I was sort of embedded mm -hmm. in. And um, early in my fieldwork, like when I started at my PhD, I had a second year paper, as is often the case. And I was doing pilot interviews for the second year paper. And um, sort of there was just these really interesting set of like grounded theory findings. I, I mean, I was still thinking of like, should I do a intercity variation? Like, you know, Bangalore is this IT hub. Like, is there some gig stuff mm -hmm. happening there that I can compare with law? Right. Like there was all these ways in which this project could have gone if it was just broadly um, a legal profession project and remember that legal profession isn't high status within sociology or oh, well not remember but know that legal profession oh. research right like there's there's definitely so I had a I had a very well-meaning mentor early in my days at Stanford who said you know I know you think this is cool but actually no one cares about this it's a good field um, and she took me out to lunch and said you know I just want you to know this is not a thing you should sp probably spend time on and you're doing it on some obscure mm -hmm. place like there's just and now that I am engaging with grad students and thinking about viability yeah. of research, like those things do yeah. matter, right? Like whether something is interesting or or has legs sort of does matter. I mean, 
But it was I'm also, curious though, why? Sorry. Like, what what is the rationale there? Um, because I'm not a sociologist, so I don't un- because yeah, in in my field, for example, if technology is the the common element, then yeah. pretty much all professions touched or transformed by technology matter. So, what's the rationale here? That's a great question, actually. I think I think it was a very old leg of sociology. Sociology is also an incredibly American field. Uh, and I sort of really agonize about this in my methods, right? Like this idea of any transnational sociology for the longest time was a very top-down perspective of like, let's go investigate this. Like, you know, there's also this whole methods divide that's becoming more and more central. So there's there's already a sort of question of, I mean, it's a, it's a terribly false dichotomy, but it's a dichotomy that exists on like what it means to do qualitative research, what it means to do qualitative research in the global mm. South, right? I mean, and there are there is hesitation to having dissertations that can be termed too critical or too post-colonial or not, you know, like, where's the sociological question? And I think one of the great boons of being in a department like Stanford, where um, I went for Becky Sandifer, who is my um, co-advisor, mm. but she left be- before I, you know, she she sort of wasn't there t- mm. when I finished. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I went for the one person that cared about law and society in this space, right? This person's left. And what the hell am I going to mm. do now? Because nobody else seems to think this is important. And the fact that I was in a space where nobody Suomoto cared about what Mm. I was doing was actually the biggest blessing because then I could then respond to it with with sort of a much more rigorously challenged um, proposal and book and research project more generally because I I had to respond to sort of non-believers in a sense, right? These were people who intrinsically think this was cool. So I had to make I had to constantly translate and transliterate it for different audiences. And that process, which again, I talk through a lot in my methodology section, is sort of what made the book because it constantly had to shift and reshift and sort of think of what are the bits that stick and what are the bits that don't stick and how do I put myself at the center of it while making this argument? Because hmm. it's so easy as a grad student, I think, to um, be completely responsive mm-hmm. to cues around you. And one of the advantages I have was that nobody around me had cues that were even in the ballpark of what it was I was studying or doing, right? right? Like it was like a, yeah, I, I often joke that I was definitely invisible through grad school. I don't <laughs> think it's, it's, it's funny having, um, it's not funny, but it's interesting having visibility at the end of this process and have the book sort of be received or or have people read it and say, oh, I got this because I still had many, many years where nobody um, fully got what was sociological about it or what was uh, <laughs> what was theoretically interesting about it. And so it's really hard to to fully accept the the sort of wins that have come along the way a decade later. I, I feel that deeply. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's I mean, and to, I don't know if grad students listen to this podcast. I mean, I hope they do. But it, I mean, part of what I also want to say is when I, you know, just to speak to your initial question of like, why is this not high status? When I went on the market, mm. I went to the market multiple times and I applied to a, maybe a total of like 130 odd sociological jobs wow. over a couple of years, right? And I got one long list callback, right? Like, so <laughs> these are the numbers. And so it's, so you could say, oh, that means mm. there's something... So, I mean, law audiences were a little bit more receptive, mm. but then I wasn't a JD from a U.S. law school. Mm. So the math of whether I would land a law job was also questionable. So try, as a grad student, there was a lot of sort of repacking and unpacking and redistributive effort that has transformed this dissertation into a book. And I think that's part of what the story of the book is, to answer the first question. It's this long-winded sort of... Uh, response to what I thought was a cool empirical finding mm-hmm. from, um, you know, excitement for it or joy for it. Yeah. And, and, um, and the empirical finding was that, you know, women in specific sorts of very high status firms were doing, um, you know, very well yeah. um, in, in ways that are so against the kinds of narratives you have in um, the kinds of narratives you have in work and gender literatures and sociology, but also global South mm-hmm. sort of, development literatures. And so it was just, it was an interesting finding. Mm. And then, you know, finding nuances in that finding then became the book because I didn't expect to find it. This book would have been completely different if I had found, I don't know, that Bangalore versus Calcutta had differences or something, right? Like I yeah. mean, the analytical variation was different, it would have been a different book. Um, but I didn't go, I didn't go looking for a gender story. I just imagined, I think everything is a gendered story. Of and course. I just find methods 
intrinsically feminist, but I wasn't looking for a gendered story. Hmm. Oh, oh my God, so much to unpack there. Uh, <laughs> and and I mean, if we have the time, we should definitely come back to the the more meta thing that you just like threw out there, which is about also following interesting questions, right? Because disciplinary formations are artificial. And a lot of that stuff like collapses when you're really just following some sort of an interesting insight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's talk about the book first. Um, and so there's six chapters. Um, and we begin sort of with this backdrop that you provide to the book story, which mm-hmm. is the moment of globalization and economic liberalization in India that in some ways transforms the legal profession as well as the the shape and scope of law firms, right? So just to set the scene and help our listeners follow along, can you explain what was going on? Uh, what were law firms like or or what fundamentally changed uh, for you to then? Because I, I remember, I think you've described in your talks elsewhere, as well as in the book, that you, again, like you said today, that you didn't quite go in wanting to study gender. In fact, you wanted to study the firm itself, right, which is changing as a as a site or an organizational form. And then there's also these comparative accounts of um, consultancies, management consultancies. So if you could give us a sense of what was going on. Yeah. Um, so I was really interested in um, I was really interested in the 1991 sort of liberalization reforms, because I think it's a really cool. I mean, I hate this word in some sense, but it, it's true that it, it was a natural experiment of sorts, mm-hmm. right? Like something happened and then it changed the way work was thought about and theorized and written about. And it was interesting to see sort of um, what the impact of that on work was across different industries. So just so you know, like the management consulting um, edition as a site happened very much, I mean, much later into the into the field work. Oh. It wasn't a, yeah, so it went, it was just, it's a legal profession study. The management uh, consultant field actually came out of a workshop where I was presenting this work and they're like, yeah, but what is it about just new work, right? So um, so let me back up. So the 91 reforms were new kinds of reforms that uh, had, you know, selective globalization in a sense, right? That's sort of how I think about it in the book, where there was certain industries where um, sort of foreign actors were allowed to work within the country. And there were certain industries where there was a lot of capital and clients, but there weren't actual organizations. And I think that's a really interesting analytical variation if you think about it, right? So if you, if the uh, Woody Powell was one of my um, advisors and, and you know, somebody I thought through this project in its early days a lot mm-hmm. with, um, I was in an organizational studies class and thinking through, oh, that's, you know, it's interesting that something happens and then different kinds of organizations re- and fields respond very differently. Mm-hmm. But from a neo-institutionalism logic with, again, Stanford is really for and I'm mentioning these things because what you write is always a function of where you go to where you get socialized of course and I was a grad student that was in this department that sort of you know has had such a long historic connection to both organizational studies and sort of actually as it happens gender inequality and um and um neo-institutionalism that I was sort of you know by osmosis, these were the things I was looking for. So it was really interesting to see, oh, there are these firms, these firms are responding to this market change. Um, but it's all so new that it transformed the nature of work. So it went from sort of mom and pop shops that were deeply sort of, you know, hierarchical and reproductive in a very specific sort of way um, to a more modern. I mean, there were these law schools that started around the same time that the law firms sort of started, but the law schools didn't start to feed into these law firms, mm-hmm. right? The law schools started as social justice law firms, uh, law schools that were meant to you know, feed into an entirely different process of like, what would it look like if we had elite legal education that could do great public interest work? Like that was the the impetus of those law schools. Mm. There's, there's, there's this co-emergence of a law school and a law firm culture that then sort of symbiotically starts to depend on each other and perform this new field that is of real great interest. So that became the site. I was like, what is happening here that is both... Um, coexisting, but also triggering new kinds of formations between these institutional actors and the field that it's that it's embedded in. Yeah. Uh, so that was the starting point. That was sort of what I was, uh, that was, that was the scope to start with. And then a few years later, when I was sort of explaining this, and I said, oh, these are the mechanisms that I think are at play. Part of it is that there isn't a background framework of what a good lawyer is, because no corporate lawyer existed in that same sense, mm-hmm. within that same setting, before the 90s, right? Like there wasn't really... Um, an ideal worker type that you were responding to. Yeah. 
that made you better or worse because you're a woman. So the kinds of things that got primed was urbanity, was caste, was, um, you know, sort of other kinds of social and cultural capital, but it wasn't along the lines of gender for a very specific sense, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's, so it's the flip. It's you find something interesting mm-hmm. and then you go back and try to unpack why <laughs> it is it's this version of interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what the process <clears throat> was. Um, the consultants were sort of a, a response. I mean, I had a, a, a workshop at, at, in grad school where, you know, everyone's like, this is really cool. But if you think it's only a novelty story, which is sort of how I initially framed it. So the first couple of chapters makes this big novelty argument of like things were so new, this background framework didn't exist, this happens. Uh, which was sort of, you know, following from Cecilia Ridgeway's Frame by Gender book that, again, had just come out then. Yeah. So this is all like, you know, very temporal influences mm. for why I was quoting <clears throat> what I was seeing the world was. Um, and there's like, oh, if it's only newness, what about newness in other forms? Like, why is this not happening in like very elite IT? IT was too big to really make a, a seamless comparison. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of really interesting work on IP, IT that sort of was super nuanced. And the only comparison I could think of where people were making as much money as they were in these really elite law firms, mm-hmm. but also living in urban cities, which were also drawing from elite professional schools, was the management consulting case. Right. It's not as big as the law firm case, but it's a really interesting comparison because it keeps something similar, but it varies the um, analytical things that I was interested in, which is really just why is it happening in one place where it's a domestic firm responding to a foreign audience versus a Indian version of a domestic for, I'm sorry, an Indian version of an international firm. Right. Um, so I have a question about, because you also talk a lot about innovation, and I think that's a, that's a very interesting uh, argument to make and to dwell on. Uh, but I want to come back to that in a minute. But first, I want to actually ask you, what is this book then about? As in, what accidental or institutional advantages did women lawyers end up getting in these elite corporate law firms? And or or if it was just really the lack of barriers that might have existed before or elsewhere in other places. And then how was this kind of different um, or absent, if at all, in management consultancy? So like, what exactly are we talking about when we allude to even that accidental gender parity or material signs of accidental feminism? Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you said gender parity and material science, because that's sort of what it is, right? Like my anguish is much more about feminism than it is about accidental, yeah. as I make clear the introduction of the conclusion. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, mm-hmm. the, the, just on empirics, yeah. right? So the difference in finding was that in the law firms, um, women were entering and advancing to partnership at around the same rate as men. Um, whereas in, in consulting firms, it sort of had the very similar logic that other um, I mean, uh, professional sites in other countries show, which is that they sort of entered at the same rate that they are represented in the professional schools they're graduating mm. from. So it's often 30%, 35%. But then when they go through the process, they don't actually get to senior levels of partnership, mm. oftentimes based on the very same barriers of like, you know, there's, you know, work-life balance is hard, mm. uh, travel becomes really important, the temporality of just being in school becomes really mm. hard. Or, or, I mean, all of the all of the usual pitfalls for why women don't succeed at work play out sort of to the T in this consulting framework, mm. which is sort of what I expected, to be honest, in this other site too. You'd expect that this thing plays out quite the same way yeah. as it does elsewhere. Um, and the empirical finding was that actually it doesn't. It, it sort of, there is an added advantage. And it was not just an advantage that women in these firms experience. It was an added advantage that these consultants that I speak to, because these offices were all pretty proximate, mm. they were all in very important real estate in Bombay, right? Like they were also, the consultants would say, you know, what are they doing differently, mm. right? And and the truth, the reason I call it accidental is because they weren't doing anything differently. Right. It was sort of a juxtaposition of a set of temporal factors that worked one way over another. And that's sort of what the book is, right? So there's um, the firms themselves, the sort of structure of the firms, this background framework that I just mentioned, the kinds of clients they had and what the clients wanted mm. um, and, and you know, like a caste dependent labor force that, you know, that both these people, both sets of um, professionals had, but that because of these range of other factors, these legal professionals were able to sort of use differently yeah. in a sense. Um, but yeah, that, that was the empirical variation, just the, the distinct difference between who could, who was advancing and at what rates and what a difference that was compared to not just the larger 
sort of legal profession. I mean, India only has five, five to 10%, depending on how mm. you look at the data. Only five or 10% of India's lawyers, even, even if you take 10%, even if you use the non-census bar council data, mm. only 10% of all lawyers in the country are women. Right. And I mean, pop, pop culture sort of mirrors that, right? Like if I hadn't read your book, really my perception or assumption would be that when they enter these places, they right. possibly remain marginal actors unless and until it's like a, you know, one of those strong women uh, roles or characters that they show. Yeah. But, but I mean, it's still the case in the traditional legal firms, right? So the first point of comparison, which like the book starts off with, is sort of very traditional legal practice mm. versus these elite corporate law firms. And so in that comparison, like, I mean, it's night and day the way in which women in um women in sort of litigation practice who are in these courts have to think and think through their navigation of these barriers and boundaries. It's exactly what you would expect. So it's not, it's not like it's a bad representation. That's pretty much what's happening in those spaces. It's the, it's the counter that sort of, um, and, and it's, and and it wasn't an easy counter, right? Like you couldn't just say, Oh, this is globalization or, Oh, Mm -hmm. this is caste or, Oh, this is class because holding all those things constant these other women in consulting did not have those advantages. Yeah. And that that to me was, you know, so it, it sort of, I think it would have been, it would have been a, it would have been a dissertation of value. Like I think it would have been a dissertation with some sort of finding if I had just stopped at the lawyers. But I think the consulting sample um, really allowed it to, to, to shine on its analytical rigor and value on its own terms mm. as a case site rather than just a story about lawyers, because it allows you to say, yeah, if it was just globalization, if it was just neoliberal politics, yeah. if it was just these other things, all of which it also is, right? Not None of this takes away from how it's everything mm-hmm. in some sense. But if it was just this, then these other middle-class, urban, um, you know, actually for, forward-cast women would be doing well because they too have these sort of life opportunities that should have resulted in these outcomes. But they don't, mostly because the firms can look around, and I mentioned this in my book, they can turn around and say, yeah, but this is what happens in India. Yeah. And law firms didn't have that choice, right? As organizations, they had to they had to signal that they were meritocratic, that they were modern. There was this, you know, what I call speculative isomorphism mm. that they had to perform to be something that they weren't going to be taken for granted to be, mm-hmm. right? Like, so a very fancy global consulting firm in India mm. is not going to have to prove to you, and, and I use you in the broadest sense, yes. like to an audience that it's modern or meritocratic or... Um, you know, has good, has its values in the right place. And that's, that, that's the cultural imperialism at play here. It doesn't have to prove that to you. But a sort of locally grown domestic law firm that is now suddenly global because of the kinds of um, market dynamics that have set it up mm. does need to do that posturing and performance. And I think that's the sort of distinction that's at the core of the book. Interesting. In fact, that's probably, uh, this is purely anecdotal, but this this is probably also true of, tech firms, right, that are Mm. US-based or global because they Mm. have such a distinct set of values or norms for what is allowed or what is expected Mm. from their India office. And Mm. uh, similarly, how they also distribute what is more innovative labor versus more Mm. sort of like back-end office work. Um, Mm. Coming to the first three thematic chapters, title foci frames and firms which kind of give us a glimpse of this transformation that you're talking about of the suddenly global facing law firm and um, the situated gendered actors and practices in those settings Um, Mm -hmm. in chapter two drawing on previous scholarship you show that sites of innovation such as the corporate law firm in this case offer an opportunity for gender constructs to be renegotiated and for Mm -hmm. gender unequal frames to also be revised so In some sense, if I understand correctly, while the firm itself is grappling with how to position itself nationally and globally, the norms within are also being worked out, right? There's no available scripts for how this is necessarily going to pan out. So then can you tell us a little bit more about this period of flux or what what is this aspiration to modernity um, that that is kind of creating these imperatives and women tend to sort of benefit, um, though not very intentionally? I have to say that is just such a beautiful retelling of that chapter that I don't know if I can add anything more about, about the period of flux. Like it's, um, I mean, it's exactly as you said. It's they, they are grappling with this sort of 
aspiration, right? Mm. But that, that grappling with aspiration is universal. It's not a thing that only specific firms in a specific site are doing. Everybody is grappling for the cosmopolitan global, mm. right? Or unless unless your identity is predicated on not being that, yeah, right. There is there is a sort of very um, sort of diffuse neoliberal aspiration to be global in a in a way that whose coordinates have not yet been pinned, but whose um, larger ethos is imagined. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the really interesting theoretical question, right? Because as part of what is happening is surely a renegotiation. But if innovation is what is doing the renegotiation, then the you know these fancy banking firms or consulting firms, both of which came about after ninety one, mm. should have also had the same sort of imagination. So I think at least part of the argument is that it's not just imagination; it's imagination without scripts, mm. right? Like, I mean, I don't know. It's it's reaching towards something when you have a sense of it but don't really know the address. I, I don't know if that metaphor lands, but yeah, yeah, no, of course. And a clarificatory question is um, sort of how central or relevant or maybe not were gender relations uh, to to the interactions within the firm? Um, and if the gender frame is, as you say, only diffusely relevant, then why do women end up getting professional advantages? That's a great question. So I, I should have, clar- I mean, I should have clarified that when I answered <laughs> the previous question, but I'm glad you offered the, you're very generous to offer the clarification. So the the two parts. One is that sort of gender always matters. The interactions are always gendered. It's incredibly gendered. The difference is that there is a positive valorization or sometimes, well, not positive, but there is not a negative valorization to a lot of these attributes. That's the So that's the first distinction. Hmm. So as I say in the book, it's not so much that there was clear advantage. It's not like there was, you know, set policies in place for what was going to happen if you had a child or, you know, it's it's not like there was a clear leave policy, at least by the time when I was doing this work. Um, and so most of these firms were really just in a sense bringing it. But the reason it was interesting is because gender was just one of many modernity frames that could have been employed. It just, right, like they were also other modernity frames, like the, you know, I, I described the kinds of offices that these were, right? Like sort of the art in these offices, the little mints on the table, like the notepads, right? Like, I mean, you, you're walking into what could easily have been a cosmopolitan law office anywhere else in the world. So there's a performance, there's an aesthetic performance of modernity and and um, mobility that's specific. No, that's that's super interesting because even I was, um, I guess my very silly question was also I, what I was trying to get at is, if, if at all you could suss out where where was this idea of like having mints and all those little things also. I mean, it's from exchanges, right? Like, I mean, there are people who visit these foreign offices, right? Like, there's you know what they want to see. And then there's public, I mean, I guess part of it is also just, just a public perception of what global modernity looks like. I mean, it's diffused. It's the, it's sort of, um, it's not just a particular law firm that you're trying to copy, although that might very well have been the case. It's just what modern organizations look like in fancy places. Um, so what I was asking you is that there's multiple things happening um, by your description, which is that women from relatively elite educational backgrounds, although not necessarily privileged by generational associations or wealth, uh, enter these law firms and then they succeed in moving up the ladder. But before we talk about how these women viewed their own success, can you bring together for us what their male colleagues, bosses, and then also clients came to make of these successful women? Because you do kind of touch upon all of those different actors. Um, and you also write about a, a new kind of gender essentialism, right? Which is like, well, we like her because she gets the work done. And it's not probably about gender. Um, so, But were there certain barriers and gendered rites of passage that were still existent um, within or outside, coming from outside of the firm that, that did still inform the trajectory uh, for these women to succeed? Yeah, so the, the gender essentialism bit is sort of, incredibly relevant right so the there is a response um so this is that this is chapter four where you know among other things you know one of one of the narratives was oh my clients mm-hmm. just prefer a female lawyer right like or they just prefer me and you know i spoke to, i mean i didn't speak to a lot of clients but the cl- few clients that i did speak to um 
would repeat that. They would say, yeah, I really want so-and-so to do my work because this work gets done best when, you know, she does it. And the logic of that is sort of some part of it is institutional, right? Like she is not just her, the individual, it's her, the individual working for one of the few firms that can handle matters so sophisticated, um, who doesn't have to do retention, whose work just comes to this person, who just has to truly whose whose job description is to quote unquote get your, get right. the job done which is often not the only description that um say entrepreneurs or or other kinds of uh, rainmakers in other legal contexts or other contexts might have to do um this the sort of to you to your question of like is there something are there certain barriers and rites of passage i think there are definitely barriers there's there's sort of the fact that you there's only one way in which to be this woman right like so Essentialist tropes are problematic because, sure, they work if, I mean, positive valorization to essentialist tropes is an interesting theoretical finding as a sociologist. But as a lived expression, it means that there's no space for alterity. So if you were like, a, if you were like an aggressive woman, right, there would be, there, even this didn't sort of, this was sort of, I, I mentioned it at the end of that chapter, mm-hmm. there are responses to, um, you know, women who behave like men or like, you know, I would much rather have a man. God, this person is so... Um, this person is so male, right? Like, I mean, these essentialist tropes play out or like my favorite is this person is so aggro, right? Which is like this way of saying, you know, I don't want this person on the other side of the negotiation table because she's so aggro, right? So the Mm. pieces that get left out is, you know, a piece that doesn't make its full way into the story because I didn't theorize it as deeply, but it's the attrition sample. Mm. It's who doesn't make it. Right. If you focus on only the successful women and, and they happen to, in a varied range of ways, negotiate these relationships with peers and clients and partners, there's also mm. the women who don't and who leave. Right. Like we're looking at a very small subset of people who match the type of what this essentialized um, essentialist lawyer is. And that's sort of, I think, the flip side of what you call the gender right of passage and the barrier. Mm-hmm. So, um, a sort of follow up question there is. I I didn't I don't think I I saw you allude to constructions and crafting of a certain femininity and masculinity, but did did you get a sense of what was the right balance to strike for the women who did succeed or or managed to stay on? Um, so I I mean I also think gender is constructed and co-constructed across interactions. Of course, right. So there's so there's not a singular performance of how this gets done and what was interesting is sort of I, I don't know if I, I so I, did, I don't think I tabulated sort of on on a spectrum of male to female what were these people performing on at different days but I think there is there were very clear notions of like when you would hyper perform femininity for what kind of client mm-hmm. when was deference useful when could it be strategically yeah. deployed when was it not going to be yeah. useful so all of the discussions around you know I'm going to wear a sari when I go to a tribunal just know yeah. that that's going to work for that market, right? Like, and recognizing yeah. when you want to step away from um, being seen, um, I mean, w- when you want to perform and underperform this identity, I think was very interactional. Yeah. No, of course, that's kind of why I asked you the question, because I remember, I think there's a vignette where someone's talking about sari versus salwar right. kameez and what kind of professionals can uh, also Probably age is another right. factor that kind of adds to the mix, right? Right. Um, right. Now coming to the other question that you, the category that you sort of alluded to already, which is the merit question, right? Mm. And again, like I've seen that, you know, from say Ajanta Subramaniam's work on yeah. more IIT and other yeah. scholars talking about a certain question of merit. I mean, there's a lot of attention being paid to meritocracy and unpacking it right now. So I know that you explore and really wrangle with the notion of accidental feminism, which alludes to a certain kind of gender parity that you discovered and observed within these law firms in India. Um, But you went in to study the changing nature of law firms and also documented the composition of these firms, right? Who gets in there and how do they succeed and what beliefs and ideologies of merit inform their success? So would you want to talk about a little bit like what were their notions of merit, both for the self and for the the space um, that is constructed around meritocracy? Yeah, I mean, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because, you know, they go from these elite law schools to these elite law firms. And merit is the backbone of it. You have to believe, you have to trust that you're there, not because 
you know, you know, so-and-so, like, I mean, I think I used this, I think in uh, chapter two, where this distinction between, I didn't have to know judge uncle to get this job, right, was a main way in which they legitimized sort of both making the kinds of money that they were making, but also living these full lives, like, and, 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 it was like, you know, as you mentioned, they were first generation professionals. So these aren't like rich women, or at least not all of them are rich women. They're very, they're middle class, urban, often upper caste women going in into spaces that have plummeted them into a sort of category of of um, of exposure, both economically and socially, mm. that probably definitely not available to their parents, right? Or most likely not available to their parents. And it's, it's, you know, sociologically, it's like a jump from one class bracket to another in a single generation, often in your 30s. Mm. Right? So part of that justification that has to well round that logic has to be the, the sort of assumption that you are doing it from the space of true merit, that merit is, um, merit is sort of what is buttressing the success. And it allows you then to, I mean, that, this is how the self-reflexive merit logic, I think, works. Yeah. But for the firms themselves, they could say it's not like we're being feminist firms. Like it's not about gender. It's about merit, yeah. right? Like we just we just reward the people who do the best work. And it so happens that the women do the best work. Mm-hmm. And same with the clients. The client is not picking, you know, any of the lawyers that I mentioned because they think this person is, you know, they, they, they trust this person. They think this person gets the job done. But it's also a merit logic. It's not a feminist choice logic. Mm. That's very interesting, and I'm kind of slyly taking us towards <laughs> the um, the the framing of the book. But before, like, I actually <laughs> to just add to that merit thing, the reason it's interesting is also merit doesn't offer these rewards to women generally. So, merit is usually used to actually do a feminist ends, right? Mm-hmm. So there's these little mini stories within the book of how kinds of like large global north con. Uh, concepts and constructs that have been theorized in specific linearities can get subverted when you look at these new sites mm-hmm. because there is something cool that's happening here that doesn't usually you know these these are not the blocks that build together yeah. and so it's not without problems it has its own set of problems yeah. but it's its own problems yeah. and I think that to me was the agenda for the book yeah I think um what I was when I was reading it I was definitely thinking of also like the the precise construction of say what you call merit within a particular life world and the fact that um you know depending on where you're at and what journey you have to make to get to some place it doesn't um it doesn't mean that it's any less important in any way right like yeah. there's still a journey being made there's a, still a certain kind of change happening etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, so to tie that back to also, um, and that's kind of the the sentence that I, I sort of kept coming back to, because I feel that across professions, when one peeks into the lives of relatively well-off or successful individuals, um, especially, say, in ethnographies of the subcontinent, um, there isn't necessarily this easy answer to whether this can be this can be qualified as good or progressive change or or whether this is a victory by some measure because again like I feel like um, and, and I'm so curious to hear what your interlocutors were telling you because they do come from a certain upper middle class or middle class um, sociobiography and also uh, forward caste women etc etc um, but then they still have to and there's probably some also inherited ideologies of merit right because this must also be a family about what it means to succeed as a woman and and what they think is desirable. So, yeah, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, because I think it connects really well to, I think, the the, the comparison between these these kinds of firms because they were pulling from the same demographic of, of these sort of upper caste urban women yeah. who both had, I mean, not both, or who all had a shared idea of what this merit was or what achieving this merit could do. Um, but I think that that's always existed, right? So merit usually in these contexts, I mean, I love the, I love the, you know, Apadura is like sort of life world mm-hmm. logic because part of what's happening here is that it's merit that looks like this kind of success only in the last 20 years, right? Yeah. So it starts with this woman telling you, oh, I I didn't, you know, I just, the idea of being a corporate lawyer and living this life didn't even exist yeah. when I was a kid because it just didn't exist. So I had no sense that this was even possible or available. So I think on the one hand, you're right. There is an accepted 
um, Savarna notion of merit that is getting reproduced and that that sort of legitimizes these gains. But the flip side of it is that it's also the the coordinates of it are so new, hmm. right? So what merit offers or what it can look like. So unlike, you know, for example, Smitha Radhakrishnan has this piece on, uh, you know, that, that sort of like scholarship that came maybe like five or 10 years before I, I was publishing this work on respectable femininity, yeah. right? Like what is middle class, what are, what are middle class negotiations of, you know, these global gains. But this is sort of a different thing because A, the gains were so much more, right? That was not the class bracket. They were not just moving one up. They were moving an entirely different life world, so to speak, yeah. within that population. And merit was sort of just one of the many ways in which they were justifying it to themselves and how others were justifying it. So one of the points I make in the in the last chapter on families is that Part of the reason this is interesting is because this is the this is a generation of women who were truly not dependent on their parents for economic sustenance, mm. right? That changes the power dynamic because then the merit is not just merit in and of itself. It's what merit can do. And, and a sort of Marxist reanalysis of that mm. point is that power then shifts. Power shifts from, you know, who you're dependent on mm. because if these women were so rich that their parents did not need them to take care of them in some sense or support them or whatever. Yeah it would not have shifted the power in quite the same way. The fact that they were middle class was actually really relevant mm. because then they put into these roles and then change the power dynamics and make decisions about, for example, who they got married to, mm -hmm. you know, when they had children, right? Like a lot of the women in my sample didn't have children until their early 30s. And you could say that's a temporal thing, but we know childbearing, um, ch child making decisions in India, even for this demographic is not this late. No. Um, and so there's something really peculiar, I mean, not peculiar, but there's something happening here that's a function of, I think, social, economic and geopolitical class of a specific time. There's no doubt that it was being um, reinforced by all of these other Savarna advantages. And, and But the difference is just how it played out in one context, but totally not in these other contexts where merit could have as easily given these gains. It's also, I think, a fertile site or a group to think with because... Often, if one's thinking about like organizational change, uh, we also tend to look for constraints, right? Because what is limiting and what's that upper ceiling that one is hitting that could possibly explain the journeys that people undertake? But in your case or in the study, um, then a lot of these conventional barriers that one might just anticipate, if they're not present, right? And and in a minute, I want to then ask you also about the later chapters, which actually talk about social support um, and family and how they play a role as non-firm mechanisms in contributing to uh, what one might easily um, perceive as parity or facilitation or empowerment, right? Like, so what we're, maybe if we, if we focus less for a moment, even on how they're succeeding, but also look at then what it means to define or determine or present and perform your own notions of success or yeah. you know when the sky is the limit in certain ways then how does yeah. that pan out yeah yeah no that's that's an incredibly generous reading <laughs> no but do you want to talk about the families bit to begin with yeah i do i i mean i i mean i i've already been speaking about the families a fair bit and i think the families bit is sort of a two part thing one is sort of how there's a reliance on very caste dependent labor for all the work that doesn't get done. And it's not, I mean, it's not just these women that use that labor force, right? Like a lot of the work on domestic labor in India and the way it's normalized suggests that everybody relies on them. So what you think of as gendered work in the household in an, in a sort of global North context just doesn't transpire in quite the same way, because for people who are middle-class and of a certain caste position, it is a natural extension of what their professional, like the work-life balance of their professional lives is not the women overdoing that work, mm. right? Like so it doesn't it doesn't naturally mean that that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, it usually means other women who are, um, you know, other women are doing that work. And, and often it's sort of, you know, not often, it's, it's, low, it's women usually of lower caste who are doing that work and who are doing it because it's always been done by these women. Mm. Um, and so that's that's the sort of one part of like what 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 the what the reliance mechanisms were that helped negotiate these work life family balances that you sort of understand in such a linear format when you're when you're st studying it from a sort of comparative perspective. Yeah. The second part of it was their mothers and in laws, right? Like the proximate families. So again, if you think of the attrition sample, the women who didn't make it in these firms were always people who didn't have 
families in the city who were not from urban centers, whose families couldn't just up and leave and come and do childcare when they had their first kid. Um, There's a a certain notion of who had access to and was capable of offering that sort of communal care. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about kinship and family, which always gets relegated to traditional. But in this way, it was actually offering a way in which to do modernity differently. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that's just a really interesting, I mean, I, I mean, to the extent you think of the nuclear family is actually not very productive. And I don't happen, I happen to think that is a really useful queer model of thinking about kinship. Yeah. Um, it was just problematizing that a little bit and saying, actually, you know, it's not just children, it's just care work, right? Like, so it's who mm. you can, who, whose care work you can pass on, whose you can't. Yeah. Then there's a generational difference, right? So the women in the previous generation actually um, were, were capable of doing of sharing this care work, but also shared the same cultural social mindset as their children did or their in-laws did, or their children's in-law did. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, changed the kinds of support networks that were available. And at least part of that is because of like when this workplace feminist movement hit the country, mm-hmm. right? So the generation of women that got into these professional spaces was sort of the first generation of women that did have done that in that sense. So their parents were mostly not in the workforce or if they were it was not seen as an important job it was like gendered labor and the way in which you understand it is that they were either teachers or bank officers who would be home in time for tiffin or in time you know whatever it was the the analogy of who their parents were and what kind of care they could give them um, was important and I think it's sort of that's the that's the sort of backdrop of the book right like there's all these things that look good but are actually predicated on deep inequality or not deep inequality but very specific kinds of structural violences that have possibilities for promise but 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 there's just possibilities and whether you actually um whether you fall towards them which is the theorizing of accident that I do or not Mm -hmm. is really a function of of um yeah of interactional journey So I have two follow-up questions before we finally get to the actual discomfort of the framing. Um, And I'll just invite you to talk about it. But two quick questions. One is, um, again, sort of coming, these are two branching out questions, which I don't think you really focus on. Uh, One is, again, going back to um, the family and, and what you just kind of indicated towards is, like these women um, are supported through different sorts of types of care relations, right? Um, Was there any sort of crisis brewing on the horizon in terms of what it meant for their gendered life scripts? Because we do talk about how the family goes into the firm, but we don't quite talk about what happens when they come reshaped or transformed in certain Mm. ways back into society family etc etc like does that change their ways for how to be you know this is the follow-up book (laughs) oh (laughs) no no not that I'm working I'm just saying that's that's sort of interesting part of part Mm. of my you know I'm gonna I'm gonna blend it into the next question I think that you alluded to which is what is my discomfort with this and I think part of the discomfort with the accidental is that I don't think any of this is intentional so I don't think people are saying I'm going into this this is changing the scripts and I'm coming out and doing x y and z it's not it's not that sort of um, dependent or even intentionally intentionally recursive uh, project but I I do think it does shape it right like this goes back to again if you go back to resources who has resources and mm-hmm. whose power is embedded in those resources and what choice making you can make within those resources yeah. it doesn't matter if you're actually scripting these families differently the minute that power dynamic changes there is a cultural shift into how this gets done and so for me the hope and the possibility that I was speaking about comes from the fact that even if you don't have intention if you are making different decisions and those decisions are producing different outcomes, then it produces different path dependencies for the future, even if your family doesn't expressly change in certain ways. Yeah. I mean, if your family just has to rise to the occasion because you're doing so well at work, then um, there's no way to tell if that's going to be um, a sustained practice or a norm after that or for everyone. But it's still something has shifted, right? Yeah. And and when you say family, do you mean, I, I was reading that to be all kin. Were you meaning just the immediate dependence, like the partner and the children? I, I think that's one one beginning. That's something that I've certainly seen around me. But I think there's also then a, a like a larger, you know, cultural thing. Like it, I'm thinking really in terms of in ways, 
that families tend to talk about their their children or their relatives who go into yeah. certain professions and the kinds yeah. of expectations or or even uh, like excuses you know like if you're a doctor then uh, your like temporal unavailability or whatever is just folded into it and and suddenly no, the gender norm yeah. gets diffused and they're not asking why yeah. a female doctor yeah. needs to stay in the hospital all night or something or touch your body yeah. or like you know yeah no absolutely i i, I was responding to it with the second question in mind because mm. i was thinking of how these larger cultural practices change right like so your in-laws not saying you know why so and so so late exactly. because she's used to you know it's like such important work right so the prestige of the work really matters it's like and if your name is in the next day's financial yeah. times or something right like there's a certain amount of so it's not just work it's visible mm-hmm. work it's the 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 logic of it has you know capital that can be transformed and say yeah of course you know works really hard you know you know it's like i don't know it's like when my mother thinks when you know when i write one email on holiday yeah. i'm like a perpetual worker and get so much pride out of thinking <laughs> her kid works so hard like it's sort of Yeah I think it transforms what you even think that work is. Yeah. Means. Um and the second branching out question I had was also to do with the kind of work that those women do in their daily work like did you at all see anything I I don't want to use the word feminist but yeah feminist or specifically informed by their um, gendered experiences that was changing the nature of corporate law practice. No. Okay. and and i and, and this is why i struggled with it because it wasn't like they were thinking through how do we make feminist change right like it was a very numbers perspective to how the culture was changing and it had incidental effects right so mm-hmm. people that were joining these firms from law schools were thinking oh like gender doesn't seem to matter in this firm so i'm going to go there right like all mm-hmm. all the managing partners are women it actually gives me comfort so mm-hmm. it, it sort of in it incidentally changed the culture of it but it's not like people were sitting down and thinking how do we do x or how do we intentionally do y or like do we actually yeah. you know ch- do we actually make sure there is a policy that requires you know i don't know like sort of more community based logics for x or can we do away with this partnership stuff i mean i don't know i don't know what that would even look like that reorganizing but there mm. wasn't a radical reorganizing based on deeply feminist principles because that wasn't the nature of their identity or their engagement with that identity right well last question i know you've got a lot of questions on the framing itself although i'm quite convinced of it partially because i also undertake research where social transformation is not easily attributed to intention mm. and is highly contingent upon various conditions such as for example migration political movements and global innovation mm. that just churn up these realities and in my case the workers i study are often trying to carve out um, places of least discomfort mm-hmm. or even trying to carve out a life project amidst these cha- uh, changes so i just want to really invite you to reflect on why you gravitated towards this framing and i heard in one of the interviews that you know you you're not thinking of it either as accidental as the emphasis or feminism it, it was really both of them together so do you want to also them as a word right like so yeah, it's it's both i theorized each of them de- differently in the book but i'm also thinking of them as a concept together it's like what mm-hmm. does the accident do to feminism what does intention do to feminism what does intention do to social movements that's sort of like where i'm where exactly. i'm thinking of it um and the sort of the spirit of the the spirit of the preface uh comes from that right like in thinking through why do i use the word accident why is it not in- incident why is it not parity why don't mm-hmm. i have a question mark at the end of this and i'm actually literally thinking through all the different versions of what this book could have been called mm-hmm. um and just the fact that it would have bang for buck wasn't enough right like the fact that it would be you know um a cool catchy. title or a catchy yeah. title was not enough and i think it really came back to the fact that I was I am really theoretically committed to asking questions that are sort of uncomfortable that I don't fully have the answer to but I think that there is sort of a certain ambivalence in critical praxis that allows you to think past normative disciplinary logics right so it's not mm-hmm. and an accident allows you that theoretical possibility it opens up that space and says what is a thing if it doesn't have intention do we still celebrate it if it's still creating these cultures of care right i mean the the i keep thinking of the opposite which is that if a bunch of really elite visibly you know post radical feminists had started a law firm and said we're going to rethink the nature of work and it's going to be in if they'd named it and claimed it hmm. 
its history might look very different, right? Like the resistance mm-hmm. that it would have gotten looks very different. So I'm, you know, it, it also, I guess I was also writing this book at the same time that I was working on this other project, the Invisible Institutionalisms Project, about what does it mean to build without sight or to mm-hmm. build with trust in the process and not care about what things are called, but to sort of experience them in certain sorts of ways. And so to me, that's what thinking, that's the concept that helped me think the book and my findings through best. And it was a political act, right? Because I was thinking through it very specifically within this logic of um, feminism, not as an end, but as a process mm-hmm. and accident, not as a event, but as a directionality. So like, you know, I think of, I think through the etymology of the word and, and try to unpack yeah. theoretically what it means to fall in the direction of, yeah. and at the core of it, it's falling in the direction of possibility. And that's the most meta sort of like framing. And that's and this might be completely working backwards from a thing I thought was catchy, right? Like, and I'm, and I'm fully aware of that self-reflexivity and I want to put it on the table. But I yeah. do think there is, there is theoretical valence into theorizing more out of spirit and ill-intentioned progress, progressive movements. No, for sure. Um, I was wondering if, you've like struggled with it in the writing, like you've really thought out all the possibilities or charges that could be held against you. And I, and I, since I'm not entirely familiar with all the literature, um, I was wondering if there, the implicit assumption that change can only be recognized or meaningful when there is a certain intentionality, is that a bent in social movements literature or somewhere else that you're also responding. To. I'm responding to 10 years of pitching this work with people not buying it. That's what I'm responding to. Right? Like I'm responding to a decade of not knowing my voice and okay. and sort of carving it until I found out what it was. And so so I'm responding to every critique I have ever, which would in some sense seems ridiculous, right? Because you can't ever make, you can't be a pleaser in a book. The book is going to like sort of not do everything you want it to do. And yeah. I'm very, very, I mean, I don't think anyone is more aware of its faults than I am because I like sort of, am, I, 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 when I let it out into the world, it was with anguish. But it, but the flip side of it is that actually, yeah, there, there is, there is a sort of strain about, bad outcomes associated with good intentions and to the extent mm. dichotomies in these in these narratives are are explored it's always in that vein it's yeah yeah everyone thinks mm. they're doing this great thing but what if it's you know but actually it's doing a terrible thing and mm-hmm. i am at the core of it like an incredible i mean patricia williams just offered me this phrase this morning so i'm going to use it but this idea mm. of a happy killjoy right like that's that's mm. my essence like i am completely mm. a killjoy but i'm also really hopeful and optimistic and I think it it sort of feels like an authentic theory to my sensibilities just as mm-hmm. how you know outing myself 50 times in the book was a part of my sensibilities of how I work through theory and it felt hopeful it just felt um it, it that's the response so all of the all of the yeah. you know I think being an engagement with people who disagree with you is the only way to build theory and so the the anguish that you read is actually just me responding to everybody who in their descent made the book what it is, right? So I didn't singularly mm-hmm. write it. The book is a conversation and it's a conversation that actually has become even more poignant now that I have set it out into the world and others can engage with it. But that that's to me yeah. the core of it. No, I, I really felt that. And I feel like, um, you know, if I didn't know the person who was writing it, um, it may not have been that meaningful. It would have still been meaningful for me, but I feel like I've read people write about how, putting books out in the world or writing about something is really not about closing or foreclosing the conversation, but really just about like etching, marking and saying, here's what I've come up with at this point after so many conversations. And and I, I mean, those times do fill me up with a certain like gratitude because I'm like, yeah, this is a process of communing, right? Like we want to keep talking about something. Right. Um, and so I really appreciated that. Uh, before we let you go, I'm sure we would all love to know what are you working on currently and <laughs> what might we expect to see from you in the near future? Uh, I'm still really interested in people and things in the periphery. I'm, uh, so I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm really curious about the periphery as a site of analysis. I'm, um, so I'm sorry, I have a, I have a couple of projects on networks that students have in law schools and the ways in which different kinds of diverse students 
um, make different kinds of social networks. So it's like a it's a project with with colleagues that I'm really excited about. Um, mm-hmm. I have another project on um, Muslim lawyers and sort of how they're uh, Muslim lawyers and non-binary lawyers and how to think about these categories that are visible and invisible in different ways and how they make their way in through the world. And then I have a project on um, sort of kinship, queer kinship and um, asexuality and the law and how to make sense of that for the progress of um, equity. That sounds amazing. Um, I wish you best of luck for all of those projects and I will obviously read everything you write. So thank you so much for sparing the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a joy. <laughs> I, 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 I look forward to continued conversations. Likewise. Thank you.